0: And welcome to Lightmap from Sifta. On Lightmap we explore what it takes to make video games and interactive media um, from creative teams all around the world. It's a guide to those new interesting gameplay experiences and we pull back the curtain a little bit about what it actually takes to put together these projects that we love and we enjoy. We speak to developers, artists, musicians, researchers and more. My name is Gianni Di Giovanni. I'm Proud to welcome you to the episode of Lightmap. And on this episode, we're joined by Ed Orman, uh, who's from Uppercut Games, who's joined us previously on the podcast when we spoke about uh, City of Brass uh, and a number of years ago now. It doesn't feel like that long ago, but it, it's been a little while. Ed, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Again, yes, yes, it has been a while. But then again, the last two years feel like about 10. So everybody's used to that kind of compressed feeling.
0: Definitely. We're talking uh, today about a new game uh, that's coming out. It's, it's an interesting one because it's been out for a while, but people in Australia haven't been able to play it uh, at all. Uh, we're talking about Submerged Hidden Depths. Uh, so let's jump right in. Hi, I'm Kyle Paletta, And I'm Fiona Bartholomeus. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 12th of May.
1: Xbox kills four Bethesda studios, including multi-award-winning makers of Hi-Fi Rush and Prey.
0: Helldivers 2 players go to war, loving 200,000 negative reviews after Sony tries to force mandatory PSN logins on PC.
1: Hades 2 gets a surprise early access launch this week, and it's already smashed the previous game's record. And
0: Nintendo confirms we'll learn more about the next Switch by this time next year.
1: You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. Articles to read. Videos to watch. And podcasts to listen to.
0: Sifter.com.au. Okay, Ed, now, if people haven't come across Submerge Hidden Depths, which For a lot of people in Australia, that would be understandable because it initially launched on a system uh, that wasn't available here. Can you tell us a little bit about the game? Uh, What is it and uh, how do you play?
1: So, so Submerged in Depths is the sequel to our game from 2015 called Submerged, which was available on all the platforms um, and still is. Uh, But uh, Google approached us when they were starting up this Stadia thing and said, look, we, we really love this game. We think it's a great match for our service, so can you make a sequel? Um, and the reason they liked it for what they were doing is that the basics of this game is it 's a relaxing exploration game there 's no combat. The goal is for you to just be able to get in, exist in this really beautiful kind of like peaceful world, boat around, um, so do some light puzzle solving, but really do everything at your own pace and this it was kind of meant to be an antidote for. You know, there was a lot of games, and, and I love combat games and I love action games, but this is this is supposed to be the opposite of that. This is a, you know, just, just do things the way you want to do them and take your time. Um, and that was submerged, and Submerged in Depths is really us kind of doubling down on that and giving you more to do in this space, and it's a much more beautiful place, uh, I think, compared to the first game. Um And so yeah that was that was our goal was just create like a continue that story, but create a really nice relaxing place for people to to boat around in and 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 you know just explore
0: um the world itself it inherently feels dangerous. um Why did you want to make a non-combat game in a game which would be i imagine pretty tricky to survive in
1: there's There's value, i think in having um theres there's tension and release. And, and even though um, I think horror games probably do this a lot, uh, like, a lot more strongly, right? Like they'll have really big, in terms of like the tension, like really high peaks and then they'll drop that off. Like we still wanted to have some of that. So there is, I, I understand what you're saying, like like the world of Submerged is uh, a ruined city that is just sticking up out of the ocean and you're boating around this place and there are, you know, there's some strange creatures there and there's, there's this hideous black plant growth that is growing over everything so there is that little bit of uh yeah tension and fear underneath the surface there but really we still do those little spikes As the more you learn um the more you understand what it is that's going on and you actually become empowered to sort of affect that and control that over the course of the game so yeah we still want to have a little bit of that um it, it's 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 a childhood thing i think like we like to have little scares that are safe scares and so submerge has an element of that in it yeah
0: what was it like to return to the series? Was it always intended that you would make a sequel, or was it more that you know Google kind of came to you and said, "Hey, have a go uh, and see what you can make"?
1: That's a really good question. My my recollection is, I know it feels like it's not that long ago because the game's only just coming out, but you know because it did come out or well, we started development on it a while ago, we had always known that it was possible to do a sequel there. And Submerged, the first Submerged, was probably one of our most successful games in terms of sales and, and revenue. So we really liked that universe, um, but for it to be successful it has taken multiple years. Right? When it first came out, it did okay, but nothing amazing. But then the, next, the following year, it actually picked up, and then every year after, it's, it's sort of you know done better and better, and um, it's had a very long sort of tail on it, if you like. So we always knew it was a potential, um, but we also knew that we wanted to do it, do it justice and do it way better if we could because the original Submerge was quite a small team, I'm trying to think. Uh, it might have been, even been like eight people, um, maybe even less than that. Um, I can't quite remember. But this the the one with, with Google Stadia's backing, you know, we, we had a team of like 23 people at the max plus external contractors and things, so we could put way more effort into the art. The world, I think, is just way more beautiful. Um, the sound design had, had much more time spent on it. So it's a really – it's a much better version of that game as well as being a continuation of the series.
0: What are some of the considerations you had to have when you were designing a game initially uh, to be run over the internet? It's a Stadia, for people who, who may not be familiar, is a streaming service. You, it's like a cloud-based, browser-based, or, or you can play it on, uh, on apps as well, um, service where you, you're playing remotely. Um, how does that work when you're trying to think about latency and all of these things um, and, and, and designing a game that makes sense uh, for that platform?
1: So, so the best thing to say about Stadia is that they solve that problem for you. Uh, like that, their whole goal, the way that their technology works, is to remove latency. Like, I'm not not to say that it's perfect, um, and probably if you have a very twitchy game, maybe maybe it, it's it's got some issues that you can see. But in a game that is slowly paced, you know, and relaxing and stuff, nobody you cannot tell the latency is there. Um, like, I don't know how much you know about the state of technology, but the controller that comes with it connects to the internet itself. It doesn't connect to your computer and then onto the internet. And they do that to remove latency, you know, like so it's directly speaking to the servers, not your computer, and then on. Um, so it's it's really clever technology. It is a shame that it, it obviously didn't get released in Australia. That was quite frustrating. Um, but uh, but it's really it's it's really good tech. But it's also I think credit to the Stadia people that um, they came to us after it being was a Stadia exclusive and said, "Hey, would you like to also release this on other platforms?" And we were like. Totally, you know, like this is a sequel to a, one of our best games, and you know, there's a demand out there. People are, keep asking us when when can it come. So, uh, good on them for letting us uh, to bring it out to all these other platforms.
0: What What are some of the changes that had to be made, or, or was it a relatively straightforward process to bring it to a number of platforms? Because it will be coming out on a lot of different things um, in a you know very short time. Um, you know, moving this from from where it was originally into something on a home home console or on a PC.
1: Uh, I won't get into the fully technical details because I am not a programmer, I'm a designer. Um, but I can tell you for for Stadia, right, we had to run that game at 60 frames per second, at 4K. So we did an awful lot of optimization work just to, to make that happen because that's their goal is everything has to be 4K, 60 frames per second. So it was already running pretty well. You do then have to bring it to the consoles and it's coming out on PlayStation 4 and 5. And the big difference there is is the hard drive. Obviously, the five has a solid-state hard drive, which means that things load much faster, which is a lot closer to the Stadia experience. So it was—I would say—it was easier to get it onto the PS5 than the four, Um, but it was still, yeah, there was still a bunch of work there just to make sure that it's mostly about streaming and and making sure that the you know the game is loading into memory as quickly as possible. Um, Control-wise, all of that sort of stuff, it was very, very straightforward. Um, So. Yeah, mostly just making sure it runs at a a good frame rate um, and still looks as good as it can, and then dealing with you know like the peculiarities of each platform and their achievement systems and and all that sort of
0: stuff. uh, Speaking of the design of the world, um, you know it feels relatively open ended, um, and I'm wondering what are the considerations you give to players uh, to sort of you know pull them along, uh, take them in directions, or, or give them the opportunity to kind of head in whatever direction. Uh, they want. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you sort of balanced n- not having, you know, limitless options, but also uh, enough to keep people moving through?
1: Yeah, it, look, we, we really make our own lives hard. <laughs> Open world games uh, in general, uh, I think are, are difficult for exactly those reasons for guiding players. We in particular made, made it difficult for ourselves because, um, you know, we, we, there's no barriers or walls in this in this world because it's an ocean. Um, you can basically from the outset when you've got when you get back into the boat, you can go wherever you want. We we don't stop you from going anywhere, so that is difficult. We have to you know the scripting and everything in the game has to handle well. What if the player goes to here, here, here? So there's no um, there's no sequence that we can rely on. So we have to build the story so that it is revealed regardless of what order you do things. You're still getting the story in the order that that we think will make sense to the player. In terms of signposting, like once you've built this huge place and uh, we we still even having made the first game we learned a lot in the second one about making sure the players knew where they could and could not go uh, what buildings it was that they could actually travel to and climb and how to get to those buildings because at water level you know you've got a giant set of skyscrapers around and at water level that is a maze you know it's very difficult for a player to innately understand well, how can i how can I get to that tall building that I can see? Like they might potter around and get there eventually, but you still want to—you still want to help them a bit. So we added signposting in, like in some place, literal floating signposts that help because the world in the second game has been inhabited by uh, post post the apocalypse, let's call it, when the oceans rose and everybody was destroyed by uh, the mass that exists in this world, which is the, the the thing that kind of rose up out of the oceans and killed everybody. Um, but there were survivors and they actually built all of their villages on these buildings. So that gave us lots of opportunities for now saying, OK, well, those people, you know, they decorated the buildings the way that they want them to be. And they added signposts for different like clusters of villages to visit one another. So those levels of signposting felt very natural and they were easily part of the world. And on top of that, then you have just like full on game UI help. You know like sometimes you just need to give the player a little bit of help so when they use a telescope and they discover a place that they could go we mark that on their map and you know you can mark that in the player's view uh but yeah other than that we, we try and stay hands off like you go and discover things we will indicate to you as clearly as we can what things it is that you can go and interact with and then it's just up to you
0: um i'm curious about the considerations about designing this world because there is obviously a lot there that people in our world can recognize right we're starting to see uh things that we get the general gist of what it is landmarks that we're familiar with and, and part of exploring this is understanding how these have changed after this big cataclysmic event um but I, i'm wondering were there certain things that you had to think about when you're designing the game to to include or not include because of the way that we already have our expectations uh, in the real world on um you know don't go to this particular area because we we would we would know that that area is dangerous in the real world so we probably wouldn't go there or, or anything like
1: that i mean the lowest level example i can think of that is, is is doors actually like like old doors um don't have handles in our game you know like because we we don't use any of them you're not supposed to be able to go through any of them uh but the first version of those that we had we had door handles on them and of course it's that's a signal to players hey that's a door that i can open so we had to take all the door handles off like, that's a really – I know it's not quite what you're saying, but, but yeah, there are affordances that people are used to from games and from real life that you have to, yeah, kind of strip out and make sure that they understand, yeah, this isn't a thing that you can interact with. Um, there is no – because there's no danger in the games, you know, we don't have to signpost anything where it's like, well, you can't go here. Basically, you can go wherever you want. Can you tell me a bit
0: about how, how you sort of frame the, this story? Because um, it unfolds – it's – uh you know, delivered in, in a language that we don't understand. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is a real language, but it's not something I understand. But you know, it's subtitled and things like that. And tell me a bit about how you you sort of touched on it before, but how people can unfold this story as they go through the game um and sort of keep it in a cohesive uh, way so that then they come out the end they've they've had an experience of 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 story being told to them.
1: We we like um we it's a three-tiered story if you like. You know there is and we tell it in parts and, and those parts are delivered to the player in different ways. So there's the story of now, like what is going on right now? These kids have arrived in this city um, and what is it that they're now going to do and learn while they're in this city about this place? But there is their preceding story, like how did they get to this point, which includes, the, you know, the events of the first game but then everything in between the first game and this one is also part of the story that's unlocked. And then there is the story of the city itself, like what happened to this city? Um, you know, like how, do, how did all these villagers build this place and then why did they all disappear? And, yeah, each of those stories is delivered in a different way. We obviously have the, the cutscenes in the game um, which are presented in, you know, beautiful 3D and, you know, the, you see the actions of the players in those and, and the things that they learn. Um, you'll also see the, the background story we reveal mostly in diaries that are found across the world. And like the first game, those are presented in a pictographic way you know, like it's 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 a set of pictures that you're supposed to not directly understand, but you should be able to nut out roughly what the actions are that are going on. And the kid's backstory is similarly, like Miku still has her dreams and those dreams bring up a little bit of the past. So as the game progresses, you find out what happened to bring them to here. And they all sort of arrive at the same time to a point near the end of the game. You sort of get the full idea of what everything, yeah you know, everything that happened to each of those different threads. It's a great – it's it's fun to tell stories that way, you know, like trying to re- – and, and make sure that they all tie into one another and, and they all deliver, a, you know, a, a great payoff at the same point. It's tricky, but it's fun. Um,
0: the post-apocalypse is kind of a, a pretty – you know, strong theme for video games. And I'm wondering, were there any parts uh, that you drew inspiration from uh, from other genres or other media um, or, or anything that you thought, no, we definitely don't want to do, you know, a game other than the non-combat of, of, of the world?
1: Yeah, not Waterworld, weirdly enough. When we even made the first game, uh, it didn't occur to us for ages that Waterworld was, you know, a movie that existed about an apocalypse, you know, set on the ocean. Um But I've always been, uh, in my juvenile way, like a big fan of the post-apocalypse. I understand the appeal. um, I think of, you know, wiping the slate clean and and building on, you know, what's left behind. I think that's a very attractive prospect to a lot of people um, as a fantasy. So, yeah, like there's heaps of inspiration, like from from Mad Max through to, um, you know, uh, well, the new Mad Maxes um boy and his dog like all all of those ideas of of the road as well which is a far more grim tale than ours but the idea of the solitary traveler who is discovering you know what happened to this world that theme is you know all the way through post-apocalyptic fiction i think and media so yeah we, we take inspiration from that but i feel like we've done a pretty good job i think of establishing our own sort of universe here and and there is you know there's a full backstory about why you know this happened to the world and um you know there's a lot of political undercurrent in you know submerged one was made at a time i mean which is still a problem where climate change was just still not being recognized by people and that was frustrating and you know like it's a pretty uh, i think it's pretty obvious the the message that we have on that front there um but yeah yeah lots of lots of post-apocalyptic stuff uh has its has its uses in in uh being inspirational i guess
0: how do you keep it a not a grim, like, you know, a hopeful world or a positive world without it being, you know, too grim. Because, uh, you know, there really you see the remnants of a lot of people in this game, um, of animals and things like that, um, and it, it's not difficult to see the tragedy of, of what has happened.
1: Yeah, it's. I, I agree. That's a, It's a fine balance for us. It's one of the things we always strive to do is make sure that the place is beautiful so that even though bad things have happened, we understand that um and you do find out you know some of those bad things that have happened to people in particular and to the animals as well you know the end result is still that the world is capable of healing itself in some way and that beauty still exists in this place you know miku and taku both get to see you know how the world is sort of rebuilding itself maybe it's not the world that humans had before but it is still a place that you know is is thriving with life and and, and beauty uh so we always you know like I've worked on plenty of grim, dark games, uh, especially post-apocalyptic games. You know, I worked on Fallout Tactics and and even our own Epoch game, and that was just straight out like, "Well, this is a terrible place." You know, everything bad has happened. Um, but we really always want to try and strive in submerged games to have that element of, yeah, upbeatness and and you know, the ability to look at a place and go, "I understand that this is destroyed, but look look at what happened afterwards." You know, it's 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 a tricky balance. I agree.
0: I, I'm I'm curious how you feel, right? at this moment, um, you know, it has been a while for um, submerged players. I think it did come to the, the switch relatively. The original game came to the switch relatively recently, if, if I'm right. And, um, you know, but for, for to come back into this world, um, how do you feel and, and, you know, setting that up for, for players to rediscover?
1: Oh, I'm, I'm- I'm fairly excited, you know. Like the 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 fan mail that we do get, or oh, the mess fan I say fan mail, man, that dates me. You know, we get messages uh, and we get Facebook messages and, and and Twitter and and stuff. The communications we get from our fans, I guess, um, are almost universally positive. Uh, universally positive, and you know, so I'm I'm very excited to see how people you know in, engage with it now. It's it's nice to know that there are people out there excited to to come back to that world. Because we left the, the first game is, is quasi-ambiguous in the ending, um, and I think people were really keen to see what happens with Miku and Taku um, going forward. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's exciting. The, you're right, the, the gap is kind of weird because, uh, yeah, I think we were PC and, and that generation console all at the same time for Submerged in 2015. And then, yeah, we came to the Switch later. We actually just released on the Switch in Japan like last year. Uh, which is a strange one, but it's just it had its own release in Japan uh, and it's doing doing okay there as well. And obviously we brought it to iOS, I think a few years later after it had come out too. So it's had this sort of stage release. So hopefully it's not too far away from any one of those players to uh, for them to remember you know what was the world and and what was what 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 about it was interesting to them
0: um the last time we spoke to you was um for city of brass and i'm just curious what are some of the lessons that have been learned in the interim um about making games i know you're you're a veteran of making games you've been making them for a very long time but um I, I imagine every project there's things that you learn right
1: <laughs> yeah yeah oh well wow so city of brass lessons taking me back now um so that was an early access game we, d- we went hey let's try early access everybody else seems to be doing that and seems to be doing really well um and whilst i I don't necessarily go, hey, early access is not a good thing. I don't think it was necessarily a good thing for us. I don't think we really fully understood how to run an early access game and how to try and build a community around your game, uh, So, which specifically for, like, a roguelike is absolutely, like, really imperative. So I don't think we did a very good job there, and that's that's one of the lessons we learned. Um how not to over, you know, over commit yourself to something? We we poured a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into City of Brass, um including with with the updates. Like we had free updates going for ages, and really, we sh- probably from a business sense should have done the numbers earlier and gone. You know, it's probably not worthwhile. The problem was we were in love with the game and we really wanted to put those features in, and you know, we, we just had to get those in there. So we still we probably worked on it for longer than we needed to. Um, But, hey, I'm still super proud of of what we made there. Um, Yeah, I don't know, like specific things. Like we were talking briefly about like the Twitch integration was actually a super positive thing, Um, but it turned out to be a feature that like people were in love with for a short period of time, like including the platform holders. It was the thing that they really wanted you to do. So, it's like, okay, we'll, we'll do Twitch integration or Mixer, if you recall. Um, before that disappeared, you know, like there was a lot of interest around those and so we put a lot of effort into those Um, and I think what we also learned from that was that we put probably the right amount of time and effort into those features because it didn't cost us a huge amount of money and it had its payoff for the time while those features were really popular and then when that fell away, like when Mixer just disappeared, it didn't cost us too badly. I don't know, there's there's a lot. There's a lot to come out of City of Brass. You know, we i'm going to keep our alarm we learned a lot about first person shooters again you know like coming back to first person shooters at that point um was you know we, we had all of our experience from like tribes and bioshock and all that and so it, it had been a little while but it was great to come back to that um and relearn some of the basics of what people want out of a first person shooter um and the procedural stuff that we did like all of the levels in city of brass are procedurally generated uh so that in itself is, is quite a useful skill to have. I and mean, we're still going to apply, even if we don't necessarily procedurally generate levels, uh, like the, the workflow that we created to make those things was was really, really helpful.
0: How much of that kind of uh, factored into the development of submerged? Like, were there broader lessons that you learned in terms of managing a project like this um, that made this a, a different way to, to, to do this game? uh or were, were yes. they so different that it sort of doesn't really fully mesh up
1: no i think no I, I would say so like it's it's not all easily scalable or, or easy to do a one-to-one you know like hey here's the thing that we did on city of brass and now we're going to do it on some merge. but we did um we did you know generate a good understanding of like 3d spaces and how to dress them really nicely how to make them how to make them look good in that workflow of like when to take it from a level designer and then give it to a level artist and, and make it look better you know um we still made heaps of mistakes making this submerged hidden depths, just as we do on every game. You know, we've learned a lot about like making an extraordinarily large city is is, is quite a difficult task. Um, when even when you're a larger team, it's still you know, it's still a lot of work. Um, so yeah, like I, I don't know if there's any specifics that I can really point to. Um, yeah, just better workflow, I think. Uh, better knowing our strengths um, and weaknesses too knowing where we should maybe get in some other people to help us.
0: Um, we often like to, to ask people who've been making games, um, you know, what their their big advice is for others. Um, we, ha- we know we have a lot of listeners who are early in their stages of, of game development. Um, what is the, the some of the big advice that you would give to people if they're attempting to make a, a project of any scale um, that makes it a sustainable process that they can get to release uh, and then hopefully on to the next thing?
1: hmm all right so first up you just is, solve,
0: solve game dev for us ed please
1: <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah we're, we're still we're, like i say we're still making mistakes and we're still learning um obvious advice which has been given to us and has been said by many other people is is like make make the smallest version of what you want to do and prove it as quickly as you can um if, and get it in front of other when i say prove it get it in front of other people get feedback on it uh, I think it's, it's a tendency to want to protect your idea from, from the world and, and keep working on it until it's perfect. But if you can get the, the smallest version of it out there and get somebody to tell you that sucks early on, then maybe you haven't just wasted, you know, like nine months of your life building this thing, which it turns out it sucks. Or at least you might love it, but everybody else hates it. Then you have to just, at least you've got to make a decision then. Do I want to, do I believe in this thing? You know, or do I go, you know what, I respect these people's opinion and apparently what I've made sucks, so maybe I should try something else. So, yeah, be open to that criticism um, and the feedback and be willing to change. There's that old lovely expression, which is, you know, you know kill your babies, which just means you might love this thing, but it might just, just be a bad match for now. It might just be a bad idea. People have bad ideas all the time. So be prepared to accept that criticism. And if it's, if it's looking bad, chuck that idea. Do something else. You've got, you've got a million other ideas you can work on. That's the basics. I don't know. Trust trusting other people uh, is definitely my core experience over my entire life as a game dev has been learning to trust other people and bring in those other opinions. And not just opinions, getting people to, to do things that you can't do. It's easy for me to say that like when you're a small, tiny indie dev and it's just just you, I understand like you have to do everything. Um, but I've now had the pleasure and, and the privilege of being able to work with more and more people um, and larger and larger teams um, since we started Uppercut. And, you know, it's always great to be able to, when you finally bring on somebody who is an expert at what they do and you realise how much a better a job that they do at this thing, like sound or music or anything, than you do, um, you know, like if you can find those people and work with them, do it, do it. It's great. It's great because they will not just do the job that you've asked them, but they will bring ideas for their from their expertise which you would never have thought of.
0: There you go. There's my two big ones. That's good. That's good advice. Um, what is one part of this game that you're really proud of?
1: Oh man. I really like the story. Uh I, I, I like I just like the way we tell the story, but I also like this particular story um and the message that we've got in this game. Um but to be to be super lame and just focus on the visuals. I really like the sunsets. I like climbing to the top of a very tall building and waiting for the sun to set. Uh, and, and you know, it's not just the sunset. It's the world the overall, the sound of the ocean and the wind blowing when you're up high um, and the creatures and, and the, everything, you know, like it's very zen for me to be able to just do that. So, yeah, like, like, that's what we set out to do, is make that real exploration game, and I think I think we've really done that.
0: So, that's Submerged Hidden Depths. Thank you, Ed uh, Orman, for joining us once again on the podcast. Uh, we can't wait to see what people think of it when they get their hands on it very, very soon. Sifter is produced by Fiona Bartholomew, Nicholas Kennedy, Daniel Ang, Sarah Ireland, Kyle Pauletto, and Adam Christou. Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and my name is Gianni Di Giovanni, and I'm the executive producer. You can find links to everything we talked about on this episode uh, on our website, which sifter.com.au read more about the games and the guests that we've featured and while you're online why not check out the sifter community Uh, if you've enjoyed this share the creativity uh, of that you're working on or or see what other people are working on as well because we've got a weekly uh, share sunday event where people put their stuff throughout the week and it all gets collected for sunday for you to check out that's um, sifter.com.au forward slash discord So please share the show. It's the number one free thing that you can do to help us out. Um, Lots of independent media rely on word of mouth, and your recommendation means a lot uh, to getting people who might love this show uh, to get it in front of them. We've also got a brand-new podcast that comes out every week uh, now that wraps the news of the week. Uh, It's hosted by a news journalist, a news reporter, uh, Kyle Poletto, who's turning his attention to covering the biggest stories in video games for the week it's called walkthrough it's available every sunday uh, with a wrap of everything that's happening and you can find it in all your podcast players right now or go to sifter.com.au forward slash walkthrough that's all we have for this episode of Lightmap. thank you so much for joining us until next time have fun
1: Hi, Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Unicorn Overlord might have a strange name, but don't dismiss its tactical prowess. It uses
0: a tactics mode, um, which is similar to the Gambit system that was in Final Fantasy 12 for your your squad mates, and you can say, okay, well you know hodrick who's my legionnaire with the big shield i want him to prioritize protecting the back row they're going to take the most damage if they take a physical hit they're going to go down but i need them to be protected so you can get quite granular with this and i reckon you could build some pretty wild builds that are (laughs) totally game breaking um but it's kind of the fun of the tactical
1: squad based gameplay in unicorn overlord tune in to drop rate to find out why unicorn overlord might just be one of 2024's sleeper hits available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.